National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, August 23rd, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security opportunities and challenges. Here on National Security This Week, we sometimes look at issues that are linked to national security but may not, on the surface, appear to be directly relevant. Today is just such a show. By the time we finish our discussions at the end of the show, I, I think you'll agree that environmental security matters and that it matters a great deal and is connected to broader security challenges and opportunities. With us to consider this topic today is James Borden, who is currently serving as a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Institute at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, also known as SICE. James is an independent environmental policy writer and was formerly a Hong Kong-based foreign correspondent for the Washington Times. He contributes regularly to Asia Sentinel, Asia Times, East Asia Forum, Geopolitical Monitor, Nikkei Asian Review, the South China Morning Post, Project Syndicate, and World Politics Review. He's also edited four books, The South China Sea, Challenges and Promises, Islands and Rocks in the South China Sea, The Post-Hague Ruling, The Art of Medicine and Metaphors, and Venture Japan. James Borton was a past National Endowment Humanities Fellow at Yale University, and James earned a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Arts with Honors in American Studies from the University of Maryland. He's been a non-resident fellow at the Stimson Center, the U.S. Asia Institute, and Tufts University Science Diplomacy Center, and has participated in numerous South China Sea conferences. Also, he co-founded the Mekong Environment Forum in Canto, Vietnam. He's just completed his latest book, Dispatches from the South China Sea, Navigating to Common Ground. James Borton, welcome to National Security This Week. Good morning, John. It's a pleasure to be on your program. I'm speaking from uh, Columbia, South Carolina, where I've been a past adjunct faculty at the Walker Center at the University of South Carolina. I am, as you mentioned, presently a non-resident senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University Science Program's Foreign Policy Institute. And I'm really honored to be a part of their international community to draw upon the rich scholarship of colleagues such as Francis Fukuyama and Stephen Heater and uh, Alexander uh, Bentman, to name but a few. The, the SICE program is one of the most prestigious uh, graduate-level programs for the study of international relations and hosting you know, first-tier policymakers and global leaders, providing the students with really an unparalleled learning opportunity inside the classroom and out. Uh, in fact, a Foreign Policy magazine has ranked SICE as one of the top three graduate programs globally, and we have nearly... Uh, 700 full-time graduate students in Washington, D.C., and there are SICE campuses in Bologna, Italy, and Nanjing, China. Uh, James, if, for, I, if, if I can ask, when did you start at SICE as a uh, that would, this, is, this will be my third year, yes, oh, third wow. year there okay. at SICE. And uh, as for my role, I'm, I contribute to the publication side of uh, SICE's Foreign Policy Institute program, and it's led by the Executive Director, Ambassador Cinnamon Dorsai. But the Foreign Policy uh, Institute produces numerous policy papers and academic articles, and my responsibilities have included uh, writing academic articles for their peer-reviewed Asian Perspective Journal. Um, for example, I co-authored an article on the environmental threats to the lower Mekong Delta, where I've spent con considerable time. In fact, I co-founded, as you mentioned, six years ago, a d domestic NGO, the Mekong Environment Forum, where we regularly produce these citizen science workshops with students to better assist local farmers and fishers address their environmental challenges associated from climate change. And, and I would just say for our, for our listeners, uh, the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies is, is possibly the top institution in the nation as far as uh, uh, graduate level international relations uh, studies are, are done. May, maybe only the, the Walsh School over at uh, Georgetown uh, compares with it. W would you agree with me, James, that it's one of the top in the country? Absolutely. And I'm honored to be part of uh, that community. And in fact, uh, have been 
engaged with conversations with some recent uh, graduates uh, related to my focus on the South China Sea. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tremendous honor to be uh, to be asked to serve at SICE. So uh, we definitely have the right guest on with us today uh, to talk about this issue of uh, environmental uh, policy, uh, environmental security in the South China Sea. So, James. You're also an you're an environmental policy writer. You've been widely published, especially across uh, Asia. Uh, what, what what was it attracted you to concentrate uh, on Asia uh, for your your journalism career? I mentioned you were a Hong Kong, Hong Kong excuse me Hong Kong based correspondent for the Washington Times, but you've clearly spent a good bit of time in and around the Western Pacific and in Asia as part of your career. So, what was the draw? Well, initially, my relationship. Uh with the Asia-Pacific region began in the early 80s when I was hired by the San Francisco-based Daily Commercial News covering the cargo shipping industry. Mm. And uh, I began reporting on Hong Kong and Japan shipping trends. So I was later uh, offered an opportunity to report from the region for the Washington Times, as you mentioned, as a foreign correspondent, and was able to travel fairly extensively uh, in the region. In fact, I lived... uh, on an island uh, off central Hong Kong called Chung Chow, and I use that as my base of operations. So I traveled to the Philippines, uh, Malaysia, and Indonesia, Japan, Cambodia, Vietnam uh, regularly. Um, in 1998, I was fortunate to travel to the Philippines, and I interviewed at that time the former president, Fidel Ramos. Uh, and also, uh, as part of my opportunities to engage in these kind of conversations with world leaders. I went to Cambodia and did interview uh, Hun Sen on two occasions. But during one of my overseas assignments, uh, I also traveled to the southern Philippines uh, in Mindanao. Mm. And, of course, uh, the Muslims have been at war with the Philippines for many, many decades. But I went as far south as possible to a place called General Santos City, and I met with the king of tuna fishing, a guy named Rodrigo Rivera, with his more than 100 longliners, and he was catching the 600 and the 800-pound uh, bluefin tuna. They're spread out on this massive, expansive dock, and he told me that fishing was becoming more challenging because of the increased competition, the illegal fishing, the environmental challenges associated with climate change, and, of course, the coral reef uh, deaths from rising water temperatures. So, in fact, I learned, and this was sort of the inflection point, that Tuna fishing had declined by more than 95% since the onset of the industrial-scale fishing in the 1950s. Pacific bluefin tuna is one of the most depleted of commercially caught tunas. But as someone who uh, once lived in southern Maryland on the Chesapeake Bay, where my next-door neighbor was a fifth-generation waterman, I did understand. I understood the, the challenges that a fisherman faces from environmental degradation and red algae blooms and more. It was only later in my reporting from the region that I saw signs that while the red tides or marine phytoplankton blooms are kind of a naturally occurring, it became clear that they were seen now with more frequency and intensity and distribution, not only in my Chesapeake Bay, but in places like Jakarta Bay in Indonesia and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So I knew there was a need to report on this kind of unfolding environmental security issue. So I had a front row seat uh, in the Asia-Pacific region and some of the the rapid ecological changes taking place in the fishing industry, especially related to the region's maritime ecosystems and the impact on livelihoods. So as I mentioned, uh, I was fortunate my assignments took me to even Japan and the Federated States of Micronesia, including Guam and Saipan. And so naturally, as a as an ocean steward and sailor, the lives of these islanders uh, have held a great interest for me, longstanding. And they are facing grave challenges in their environment from climate change, rising sea level, intense weather change with greater typhoons, and, of course, fishery collapses. And uh, there, for Southeast Asia's, what, 600 million people, the food security crisis corresponds directly to overfishing and unreported and illegal fishing. And all this relates to these transboundary water issues, which I guess we'll take up later. So, so 
clearly, James, the I mean, you're, you you are obviously very knowledgeable on environmental policy issues, uh, environmental security issues, uh, certainly on, you know, feeding people from the sea. Uh, you and I, I think, are both very fortunate in that, in that we've both uh, visited many of these countries in, in Southeast Asia and Asia in general, and even the island nations across uh, the South Pacific. Uh, my career in the Navy, I spent most of my time uh, over in the Western Pacific when I was at sea and whatnot. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head here in that uh, the environmental security piece is a vitally important discussion when it comes to uh, economic uh, prosperity, economic opportunity, feeding people. Uh, so we're already sort of touching on these issues of why environmental security uh, matters to broader uh, hard power security issues. Uh, if people can't find food to eat, that's immediately going to impact uh, their own sense of security and drive governments to make uh, difficult decisions. So uh, I guess maybe what I should ask here is the environmental policy piece. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you had a I guess almost an emotional connection to this issue when you started to realize uh, the impacts of overfishing and pollution and everything else on the on the marine ecosystem uh, in that region of the world. Is that what really kind of drove you uh, to pursue this uh, career as an environmental policy writer? Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember um, as a reporter being on the Mekong River and traveling to Cambodia in the, in the 90s. And, of course, I recognized immediately that the most important story there in Cambodia was the, is the Mekong River. I mean, it's the artery for life for millions of local fishermen and rely on the pulse of that river for their fish resources. And, you know, for centuries, the Mekong River has provided the silt and the sediment, and the seasonal floods to nourish a world of finely balanced ecosystems. And, of course, that region is home to at least 65 million ethnically diverse residents and thousands of species of endemic flora and fauna, the large saris crane, the Irrawaddy dolphins, the giant catfish that we see in the river. It was conversations with these fishers along the banks of the river that told me, they told me about how their livelihoods uh, were now being threatened because of the natural ebb and flow of the water is increasingly uh, being disrupted from the adverse impacts of the hydropower dams. That was the start. That was kind of the lightning rod for me to examine the damage to the ecosystem from the construction of these upstream dams created by China. So I began my journey, uh, you know, diving more deeply into the adverse impacts of the dams constructed by China and how they are causing irreparable damage uh, to the downstream countries, particularly uh, Cambodia and Vietnam's lower Mekong Delta. And I was particularly struck by how these upstream dams were altering the fragile ecosystems and wrecking the livelihoods of more than you know 2.3 million farmers whose lives along the Mekong River and the canals in the v Vietnam's Mekong Delta were highly dependent on that on that river system. So what I witnessed, of course, were record droughts, of course, sea level rise in the Delta causing the rice paddies to be unsustainable and also the decreased downstream sediment flow. In short, I, I saw that the storyline for me as a developing environmental policy writer was to examine how the environmental policies or the lack of them were shaping the lives of these villagers who lacked a voice to reach government officials. And so for more than three decades, uh, China has been building these dams on China's upper Mekong reaches, which it calls Lankang. Of course, the, the rapid economic development in these riparian countries over the past several decades reveals the increased economic and political dependence on China's orbit. Mm. So and these hydropower dams continue to cause depletion of natural fish resources and imperil fishing villages. So I felt an obligation, uh, a strong obligation to report and study how China's unprecedented upstream restriction or control of water flow from the Mekong's upper basin was hurting the ecosystem and the lives of downstream villagers. This was the start. This was really the start of my environmental uh, policy reporting, and it evolved, evolved into an expanded examination or focus on what's happening in the South China Sea 
and a recent survey that uh, we produced, but more about that later. Uh, sounds like you were on a mission, James. Uh, and I would just call attention to our for our listeners. Uh, early last year, we actually did a show here on National Security This Week that focused specifically on the Mekong River uh, and everything that was happening uh, up and down uh, the entire length of that river. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is James Borton, and we're discussing the importance of environmental security, specifically in the South China Sea region. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, James, uh, let's talk about a recent survey that you helped lead that spans some critical topics in and around the South China Sea. Uh, We'll concentrate on that region for a bit and then maybe take a look at things over a larger geographic area and with broader implications for security in general. Could you tell us about the catalyst for administering uh, the survey, the goal for the survey, and maybe a bit about the methodologies that you used uh, to complete the survey? We'll start. There. Sure, I'd be glad. I'd be glad to. Um, but before I even start there, let me let me allow me to sort of provide a, a background for the survey uh, for your listeners. Mm-hmm. I mean, the South China Sea uh, is bordered and shared by the Philippines, China, Vietnam, Indonesia, Brunei, and Malaysia. Talking about 1.3 million square miles of water that are rich in fish, oil, gas, and, of course, the commercial trade routes. But the tensions, the tensions between China and the neighboring countries over territory and boundary disputes have run pretty hot for years, with China claiming the majority of the sea within an allegedly historic, what they call, nine-dash line border. But the contested area where their lines are drawn includes the Paracel Islands. I wish we had the map here. They could see the Spratly Islands, uh, comprised of, what, over 100 rocks and atolls, but surrounded by fishing grounds and also claimed by China, Taiwan, and Vietnam, while some portions are also claimed by Malaysia and the Philippines. So you can see this becomes a contest of who owns which rock, which atoll, and the Paracels are also claimed by China, Taiwan, and Vietnam. But since what... 2014, the People's Republic of China has continued to assert their claims to this wide swath of the South China Sea, including their right to draw baselines and closing in in internal waters within these four geographically dispersed islands, including what I mentioned, the Paracels and Spratlys. So China, uh, over the last uh, four or five years, has built up these military outposts on reefs and islands. Uh, Its Coast Guard often patrols the waters. China's actions show that it is willing to push the limits of international regulations and laws to establish their dominance in the South China Sea. So for several several years while researching my latest book, I attempted to reach out to uh, Chinese marine science scientists in order to gain their views on the roles of marine science cooperation and science diplomacy. So after all, as a reminder for all of us, we are living in the UN decade of ocean science, and it offers measurable hope and opportunity for science diplomacy to identify common interest in spite of the national interest of the ocean. So the survey, the survey was to gather initially email responses to support the belief that science can indeed inform foreign policy decisions. So it was this concept that This type of diplomacy has raised two important questions in efforts to successfully address and settle the South China Sea dispute. Namely, should we do it and can it be successful? My my goal for the survey was to ascertain whether there is a political will for marine science cooperation and how science diplomacy may prove to be an effective lever for tapping down rising geopolitical tensions. As for the the method and not being a social scientist, I mapped out a kind of unique combination of a qualitative and quantitative approach in forming questions that would result in both open-ended responses and also those that could be ranked, for example. Like the first question, the first question in the survey was, based on your experience, expertise, what do you view as the biggest problems of concern in the South China Sea? And the choices were territorial disputes, securitization, militarization, U.S.-China strategic relations, 
China-Taiwan relations, economic opportunity, food security, energy security, climate change. Well, John, uh, nearly 80% of the respondents selected territorial disputes. Mm. We also included, for example, a ranking on a one-to-five scale on problems like overfishing, coral reef destruction, extreme weather events, ocean acidification, sea level rising. 70% of the respondents checked overfishing and IUU as the greatest threat. I don't know if you want me to uh, dig a little bit deeper in terms of some of the responses, but maybe... uh, no, I I, I think diving into some of those uh, those findings is uh, is going to give uh, all of our listeners sort of a sense of where uh, you know your respondents who who were the respondents by the way to the survey. Marine scientists, um, policy experts, academics who are focused on Indo Pacific region, um, journalists actually who've been reporting in the area. Uh, we had a pretty wide swath of, uh, of respondents, and I was pleased about that. Uh, many, uh, many of them I'm, I had met because of my attendance at various South China Sea conferences and programs and webinars, uh, of course. But uh, uh, I guess in terms of coming back to uh, the specific findings and, and kind of drilling down on that, yeah. uh, what, what I learned about, uh, well, about the environmental policy development. Um, let me let me first of all uh, add, and I'm remiss in not stating this, that this survey was you know successfully completed and compiled with the professional support of my friend Roger Baker, who is the executive director at the Stratford Center for Applied uh, Analysis at Rain. It's a risk assistance network exchange, and uh, but the three key points that emerged from the uh, from the survey, where one, although kind of the geopolitical issues top the list of concerns in the South China Sea, many of these issues have underlying, we've stated, environmental factors, particularly surrounding fisheries. So the South China Sea accounts for some 12% of the global fish catch and competition for fisheries is linked to territorial disputes, expanding the kind of securitization of the South China Sea and environmental degradation further undermining the stability of traditional fishing grounds. So now we can understand why there is this uh, kind of runoff, uh, literally in terms of uh, Chinese vessels ramming uh, traditional wooden boats uh, to gain access to these fishing grounds. So regional competition significantly uh, curtailed the efforts at collaborative management of these fisheries. If I could, if I could interject just for a second on that fisheries uh, issue. Um, So we have industrial scale fishing uh, by really Chinese and Japanese fishing fleets. And those two nations rely very, very heavily on the sea uh, to feed their people. In the case of China, 1.4 billion people. Uh, you can't really raise enough, uh, you know, protein via livestock on land to to truly uh, meet the needs of 1.4 billion people. So that that commercial fishing fleet plies the waters, the oceans of the world. But the South China Sea had traditionally been one of the places where they could quickly go out and, and capture large stocks of fish. Now that directly competes against, I guess you would say, more sustainable fishing practices that most of the nations around the South China Sea have been practicing and continue to practice to today. So there's a there's a conflict over feeding people that happens right there in the South China Sea. Everybody's sort of front yard. Uh, and it's hard to avoid conflict when uh, when one of the driving factors there is how do we feed the people of our nation? And you mentioned earlier roughly 600 million people uh, around the South China Sea region competing against 1.4 billion people in China for how are we going to feed everybody? That that sounds to me like environmental security, environmental policy issues have a direct impact on broader security issues uh, in the entire region. Uh, it, it, is, that, is my assessment uh, relatively accurate? Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, China with its 100,000 trawlers have not only plundered the South China Sea, but as we know, they've gone far afield uh, off the coast of Africa. Uh, they are in our backyard, for God's sake, in, in the Pacific Islands, right there in Guam, Saipan, the Federated States of Micronesia. 
Yes, they have legally paid to those islands uh, access to the commercial license, but there is no more fish. There is no more room for the artisan or local fishermen in those communities. We should be alarmed. We should be. Um, And this idea that, well, occasionally a Chinese steel-hulled mega trawler will ram a traditional wooden Vietnamese vessel and they're there's a loss of life, a loss of livelihood. We don't even hear about that happening on a daily basis. It does happen. And, of course, countries like Indonesia uh, have taken umbrage uh, at this, and they've wasted no time in, uh, in blowing up boats that uh, are violating their sovereignty, their waters, uh, responding uh, with uh, with certain level of ferocity and uh China is aware of that. I think that this idea of kind of tapping down the tensions and using science as the lever to do so is urgently needed. Uh, We need to see more of these workshops taking place, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit uh, later. But I was getting back to to the research findings, and one of the the, uh, key kind of takeaways is that the scientific research and science diplomacy has the potential recognizing the potential to address some of these underlying uh, factors that we've laid out uh, contributing to regional tensions. But there is little trust that such collaboration is possible in the current environment. And that's disappointing. There is a long history, however, of uh, competing nations continuing to expand science cooperation and management of the food and other natural resources. But we need to see a coordinated effort to collect and share data something that uh, is not unfolding in real time yet. Bilateral efforts have proven effective, and there is room for a shift to kind of multilateral collaboration, building off the other regional historical models. The other uh, key takeaway, and maybe the final one, was given the importance of environmental factors impacting food security and strategic competition in the South China Sea, the respondents suggest an increased need for policymakers to better understand the environmental science of fisheries to make more informed decisions. And this applies to other resources in the South China Sea, including oil, gas exploration, minerals, um, exploration of which often leads to security confrontations in the region. So As environmental issues play a strong role in the geopolitics uh, of the region, it's important to collect better data and disseminate this information to prepare uh, policymakers. And I think it's uh, really important to understand at the heart of this regional dispute are the resources. And chief among them is neither oil nor gas nor seabed minerals, but fish, fisheries. Food. And yet these efforts to uh, kind of uh, establish a regional fisheries management plan seem to be mired in kind of political tensions and territorial disputes. Uh, So, James, I I have one other question I want to ask you, but uh, we need to take just a very short break to recognize our sponsor, uh, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back, and I'm going to hit you up with that last question on, on the survey. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back here on National Security This Week, and our guest is James Borton, who's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. We're talking about environmental science, environmental policy, environmental security, and related foreign policy issues in the South China Sea. So, James, uh, before we took our break, we were talking about the uh, survey that you and Roger Baker 
uh, carried out in the region, in the South China Sea region. Uh, were there any results from that survey that really surprised you, that le- left you and, and Roger Baker sort of confounded, you know, scratching your heads? What, what, what was, you know, something that was really kind of off the wall that you weren't anticipating, but maybe was really insightful in the response you, you received from your uh, respondents uh, to the survey? Well, I was disappointed and I was surprised that uh, overall the respondents do not see strong existing science cooperation by the nations in the South China Sea. Mm. Uh, but in, in general, I guess they they consider the Philippines and Taiwan as demonstrating the strongest uh, science cooperation and, of course, uh, Brunei and Malaysia, the weakest. But, but the most mentioned kind of demonstration um, of the science cooperation in the region was the joint maritime scientific research by the Philippines and the Vietnam. Uh, uh, they've seen that in their uh, joint oceanographic maritime science research expeditions that were first established in 1994. So their objective was to enhance friendship between the two countries uh, through cooperation in the marine scientific research and improved knowledge of the marine environment and resources in the South China Sea. So they've... They, they carried out what four expeditions um, between 1997 and 2007 with a focus on the Spratly Islands. And that data was indeed shared uh, on the seas biodiversity and including, including the coral reef health. But what we have seen and reflected in more recent uh, science studies is there were about 2,500 species of fish that inhabit the South China Sea. But in the last Two decades, the catch rates have declined by 70%. Ooh. So, and the large fish stocks have shrunk by nearly uh, 90%. So, uh, we were disappointed uh, in general that there was little confidence uh, in the Arctic Council or the Antarctic Treaty as potential models uh, for managing the South China Sea. The uh, respondents uh, particularly highlighted the geographical and geopolitical differences between the South China Sea and the polar regions and the current securitization of the region, the highly contentious territorial disputes in the South China Sea. Um, But to be clear, the Arctic Council, now in existence for 25 years, comprises, what, eight Arctic states, Canada, Denmark, uh, uh, Greenland, uh, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, the United States. The high-level intergovernment forum that addresses issues faced by the Arctic governments and even the indigenous people of the Arctic. And together, they are addressing climate change and waste management and pollution. So we thought that the, you know, with the Arctic's fragile ecosystem now facing rising sea levels and decreasing ice thickness and coverage, that this might serve as an excellent model for these climate nations in the South China Sea. Um, but let me also add as reference and I, we modeled this in our survey that we should take a look also at the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed in 1959, providing a legal framework for the region and signatories to agree to some zone, zone free of nuclear test and disposal of radioactive materials and to ensure that it would be used only for peaceful purposes to promote international science cooperation. Um, and that's that represents uh, what uh, 29 voting nations and uh, 21 non-voting the agreements negotiated within the Antarctic Treaty included environmental protection measures for expeditions and stations and visitors and uh, waste management provisions a ban on mining all of this was part of an agreed upon uh, treaty and uh, it's you know noteworthy that that uh, China uh, is also kind of a late entrant into this region, the Antarctic, and with its aims of solidifying its blue water Navy and has expressed a desire to exploit Antarctica's mineral resources. So we're seeing some potential uh, breakup of that solidarity in terms of all nations being mindful of the environmental issues. China has also established a a station at Kunlun at uh, Dome Argus, the highest location on Antarctica. So we are already witnessing some early signs of rising tensions and possible conflict in this region. But uh, as I stated earlier, uh, most of the survey respondents uh, failed to see that these models where signatories embrace the rule of international law 
and protocols on the protection of the environment are not at all fully embraced by climate nations in the contested South China Sea, especially by China. So that was disappointing. Yeah. Uh, so the results that you've sort of given to us uh, over the last uh, 15, 20 minutes, uh, the results of the survey that you and Roger Baker, I, you mentioned he's uh, at the Stratfor Center for uh, Applied Geopolitics. Uh, what are the implications that, that that you and Roger see from this survey, the, the results that you uncovered? And how might this survey help to stabilize a region of the world that has become a place of, of, of truly heightened tensions, as you mentioned? And I'd say mostly it's driven by actions by the People's Republic of China uh, in the South China Sea region. Well, I'd like to believe that uh, science is a universal language and that uh, it's giving rise to a conversation that's urgently needed on this role of science at a time when marine resources, as I've stated, uh, are on the decline. Fish are disappearing at an alarming rate and fisheries fisheries are collapsing. So almost 75% of uh, you know the respondents agree that there is this looming uh, food security crisis in the South China Sea due to overfishing and coral reef destruction. It is interesting, uh, however, to compare this to the first question, highlighting the most important issues in the region where you know, food security rank well below the pressing geopolitical issues. Uh, this is something this report can highlight. The clear linkage between fishing, food security, environmental degradation, and regional security. So, as a result, uh, I think more marine scientists are in agreement that the South China Sea coral reefs are now threatened by ocean acidification, overpopulation, overfishing, reclamation, sedimentation, and these destructive fishing practices. So, even China, even China's marine scientists, especially, know that their own coastal waters have been wrecked by. You know, the rapid industrialization, they also the need to transplant coral reefs uh, wrecked by the reclamation damage. All of this happened despite uh, China's passage of the Marine Environment Protection Act in 1992. Hmm. So most of the marine scientists that I have reached out to uh, agree that China's marine environments, especially in the South China Sea and the Yellow Sea, are among the most degraded marine areas on Earth. So the loss of natural Coastal habitats due to land reclamation has resulted in the destruction of more than 65% of their tidal wetlands around China's Yellow Sea coastline. The dredging that you read about and seen on the news that has occurred in the South China Sea atoll has killed reef formations with the dumping of sand and concrete. Many of those coral reefs were, you know, a thousand years old. So the marine scientists have made it clear to us in this study that Many populations of even the reef fish do not migrate and mix with others across the ocean. Instead, new studies suggest that the larvae tend to settle near where they were born. So many species of the fish exist in small geographic ranges and destroying even one small section of the reef oh, it leads to extinction. And uh, this should be of concern to all of us. So, uh, James Wharton, your, your survey uh, cut across many areas of human endeavor, from fisheries to seabed mining to oil exploration, many other topics, including uh, the securitization of the, of the region in the South China Sea. As, as I interpret what you've been telling us today, uh, human security and environmental security really intersect uh, in this area, and, and they become, uh, when you look at the two of them together, much more in the way of sort of a traditional security issue uh, sort of like hard power or diplomatic engagement. I mean, there's a real, uh, there's an importance to these topics. Uh, as you and Roger uh, Baker interpret the data from the survey, what opportunities do you see for constructive cooperation between the ASEAN nations, uh, China, and, and other nations from around the world it, that are concerned about the South China Sea, including the United States? Well, the the data does suggest, I mean, that there's, interest in exploring how science and science cooperation or if you wish science diplomacy would be a valuable tool and may play some part in tapping down the tensions and managing regional uh regional well regional tensions if you wish and despite the sovereignty claims uh, among the nations but i think the key here is to better define science diplomacy to build 
networks and just try try to stay beneath the political and security disputes. This is what they have attempted to do in the Arctic Council, uh, uh, for sure. Science cannot resolve or manage all the regional challenges. I think we all agree to that. But some of the actions that can be undertaken and to some degree have include, include claimant nations hosting uh, marine science workshops uh, like those held last year even in 2022 in China, uh, Vietnam also, and Indonesia. Uh, they held uh, uh, multilateral kind of marine science workshops inviting the science scientists and policy experts to meet uh, and to strengthen kind of a scientific and technical cooperation in the contested South China Sea. So conversation, science, that universal language is, uh, is tantamount to at least moving, uh, moving forward with uh, uh, the impasse that we're at right now. Uh, though it's also noteworthy that in the Indonesia workshop uh, uh, that was held last year was preceded by the 17th working group meeting on the study of tides and sea level change and their impacts on coastal environment, the South China Seas, that there were participants from Indonesia, Brunei, China, Malaysia, Taiwan, Vietnam, and the Philippines speaking about and addressing the common issues that they are facing from sea level rise and climate change. So, um, you know, concluding uh, that workshop, the Participants uh, walked away or agreed on future project proposals of cooperation uh, on subjects uh, like uh, uh, responding to sea level rise. Uh, They're going to offer training courses on ecosystems based on uh, agreed upon ocean governance principles, uh, collaborate study uh, on uh, blue carbon, ocean network education workshops in Southeast Asia. I think this is promising. And also, even last July, you know, uh, last July, the National Academies of Scientists, uh, Engineering, Medicine, in collaboration with Chinese Academy of Scientists, convened a workshop, uh, China-U.S. Scientific Engagement, Sustainability, and Biodiversity. Uh, so this was the first in a series of three workshops to promote scientific coordination, cooperation, collaboration between China and the United States on sustainability issues. This is good news. Yeah. So, James, in your dialogue with uh, respondents to the survey, did you hear any, you know, truly insightful ideas on how to rethink uh, about how, to, how nations might use the tools of national power? And we talk about the tools of national power on this show on a regular basis, uh, the power of diplomacy, power of information sharing, military and economic power, often referred to as dime, uh, to help reframe the understanding nations uh, could have of the South China Sea region, to get away from the confrontation uh, that's been happening over the last few decades and, and maybe move back to a spirit and really an implementation of cooperative protection management and shared extraction of limited limited resources in the region. Any any truly insightful ideas that uh, came from your respondents? Yes, uh, there, there were. I, I actually followed up with a couple of uh, the respondents, a uh, Chinese marine scientist in email communication and Learned a few things that that I was not aware of. That you know, China uh, is you know part of more than seventeen uh, land or environment transboundary agreements. Uh, so, so understand while they're indeed their fishing fleets continue to plunder the oceans, uh, they do want to protect the environment, and they see the urgency. They also have a history of doing some multilateral agreements. So they're engaged in several international fishery organizations. So it's not out of the picture that an increasing number of the uh, marine scientists can and will gain support of their own citizens to ensure that there's no further collapse of the fisheries. The question is, is there a, a really a political will uh, to go forward with this kind of cooperation? Uh, of course, uh, these scientists that communicated with me were kind of brave enough to make their voices heard to oppose the kind of party line that the South China Sea belongs only to them. So, um, yes, I think that the science, science diplomacy is an effective tool, uh, maybe stymied by some geopolitical problems, but uh, can it not be representative and inclusive in nature in the kind of subnational levels in this region in terms of knowledge, creation, ownership, resource management? I think there may be a tendency to depoliticize the debate at times to ensure solutions that may 
leave out and lead to further conflicts. But we we all must think across the 21st century and take a long lens approach. Yeah. But we have this opportunity to think across generations. A short-term thinking leads to short-term solutions. So in conversations, follow up to the survey, I know that uh, we can continue to learn from science and how we can get them to interface with policy experts. And, you know, it's not true that uh, the fish that are offshore will stay offshore and those that inshore will stay inshore, but these habitats, which are often very close to shore, play a very big part in the production of the fish that people catch on both sides of that line. So, but what I'm hearing is the urgency, uh, a real urgency to protect the coral reefs and coral reefs occupy what less than 300,000 kilometers and less than 0.2% of the ocean. So it's estimated there are over what a hundred thousand known species associated with coral reefs, but millions, including those that are microorganisms that are still left to discover. One billion people plus rely on healthy coral reefs, including the islands of the Pacific and the Caribbean. And so they are highly productive in terms of its value. Yeah, All of this leads me to the point that we need to have more conversations. We need to invite the scientists to sit at those tables. And maybe they, they take the form of uh, informal workshops. Um, maybe they're even off the record. So for people like myself as a journalist, uh, we will not allow be allowed to report on them. But the point is that we need to see uh, more of those conversations, and that might translate into uh, 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 cooperation. Uh, so ultimately, the, the survey and the kind of post-conversations uh, with these leading scientists uh, reveal that there are opportunities. And uh, this would translate perhaps into marine protected areas that may be networked throughout the region. For example, I recently uh, completed a short documentary film with uh, professional support from two filmmakers in Chicago, uh, Kathy Monk from Brave New Pictures. And we went to an extraordinary marine protected archipelago about 20 nautical miles off Vietnam's central coast, where discovered about 1,000 or 1,100 islanders who understand that their livelihoods as fishermen depend on the protection and care of their coral reefs. So they're really connected to the sea, and I know that there are many, many more communities in the regions who live and breathe conservation uh, and sustainability. So I was fortunate enough to meet a marine scientist, uh, Professor Chuman Trin, dedicated person who, by the way, his PhD as a Fulbright scholar was right here from the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Right. <laughs> but he has taught them about their responsibilities to be ocean stewards on their island, Kula Cham, uh, about, you know, how to look at the long lens, the future generations, uh, and to recognize that there are dangers associated with overfishing and plastic pollution and biodiversity degradation. Yeah. Uh, so they are succeeding, and this is a bright, shining model uh, for many other communities in the region. And I'm uh, pleased to to share this with your listeners this morning. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is James Borton, and we're discussing the importance of environmental security, specifically in the South China Sea region. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, James, we have about, unfortunately, only about 11 minutes left in the show today. I mentioned early in our show that we would concentrate uh, really on the South China Sea region for most of the show, then expand out a bit. And I want to go ahead and expand out a little bit more right now. Uh, China's been aggressively courting the many islands across the South Pacific, they, a region referred to as Oceania. Uh, they've made diplomatic inroads with many island nations. The, the Chinese have offered infrastructure development. They've offered visits by Chinese hospital ships. They've offered to provide energy resources. Basically, they're really courting these nations, but probably more for basing rights and influence across the region than ra rather than really for humanitarian pursuits. If you were to extrapolate on the results of your survey uh, that was focused really on the South China Sea to the broader Pacific and Indian Ocean regions, uh, all all of which are being threatened by all of these same uh, economic uh, extraction challenges. Do you think you'd get the same results from an even larger set of uh, respondents? Uh, so if you were to ask inputs for, from scientists, policymakers, security experts, et cetera, across the South Pacific, 
would you get similar results to what you received in the South China Sea? And what would be the ramifications of such an outcome in your view? Maybe you could spend about five minutes talking about that. Yeah, this is a lot to unpack, but it, uh, let it me is. start. <laughs> uh, uh, climate security, uh, covering a broad range of dimensions, including ecological security, national security, has found its way into Indo-Pacific strategies, for sure. Uh, but within these strategies, uh, the security implications of uh, climate change in terms of biodiversity degradation, loss, threats to development, migrations, displacement, food, water, energy, security nexus, and disasters are at the top of the agenda of the leaders uh, and the islanders uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And just a few uh, years ago, two years ago, uh, India's Prime Minister Modi, Narendra Modi, launched the Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative at the East Asian Summit. And the central purpose was to help shape maritime cooperation throughout the Indo-Pacific and thus support a kind of rules-based maritime order. Um, this was a multilateral plan in engaging the Indo-Pacific countries on a range of maritime-based initiatives to strengthen and enhance regional cooperation, which is what we've been talking about. Some of these specific uh, regional arrangements included addressing um, marine plastics and the illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, uh, ocean science, uh, marine disaster management. Of course, of course, the most successful regional uh, cooperative arrangement arrangements are often built upon broad pre-existing regional cooperative arrangements, such as combating IUU fishing in the Pacific and the marine debris and the association of Southeast Asian nations. But it's also noteworthy that the coral triangle initiative that brings together Southeast Asian states, including Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, with Papua New Guinea, Timor, and the Solomon Islands was a cross-regional initiative that's relatively successful despite there being no private uh, prior history or substantial cooperation among these countries. I think the key factor in the success of regional marine ecological initiatives was the extent to which regional understandings were implemented in a national legislation or by a national authorities. For example, uh, combating IUU fishing in the Pacific was found, to, was found to provide a way for countries nation states to successfully coordinate the national implementation of agreed measures, such as through the creation of a standardized licensing terms applicable to all distant water fishers. Uh, and this is coordinated and supported by well-resourced and regional institutions such as the Pacific Islands Forum Fishery Agency. So I would say that if we expanded the survey out from those beyond the South China Sea region, that the survey net would yield promising results. There's encouragement that a new agreement was reached last year between UNESCO's Intergovernment Oceanographic Commission and the leading scientific and technical or organization in the Pacific region. So the Pacific community uh, most certainly uh, boosts uh, science collaboration uh, in the world's largest ocean. And that common ground uh, includes, well, in real time, early tsunami warning systems, risk reduction, ocean literacy, capacity development. So I believe that this agreement reinforces the significance of our recent South China Sea Marine Survey, since it does encourage cooperation and undertaking partnerships in the study of the ocean. Could you see uh, you and, and Roger Baker uh, expanding that survey out and maybe and pushing it out to uh, uh, potential respondents across uh, the South Pacific region just to gather more data? I would hope so. In fact, I have suggested to some friends in Washington, I've done programs at the Washington, D.C.-based East-West Center, which, as you know, have a large footprint in Hawaii, the East-West Center, that they bring together uh, in a future program, an informal workshop, if you wish, uh, all of these uh, Pacific Island nations uh, bringing together the South China Sea claimant nations, that is, representatives from science, marine scientists, oceanographers, to gather together at the East-West Center uh, and have this dialogue, have this conversation, have a workshop. Um, I think weighing in on, on the possibility of collaborative uh, science, and uh, this, is, this is what is needed uh, now more than ever. So, James, we have about five minutes left. Uh, I, I'd like to uh, give you just sort of the final word, and then I have a couple of follow-up questions. I want to hear about your latest book and a few other things uh, that you've been working on. So 
I always give my guests the final word. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners this morning on this topic of the South China Sea and environmental security in the region? Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, well, since this is the decade of ocean science for sustainable development, it calls for a new uh, kind of stakeholder process that will be inclusive, participatory, and global to deliver the science required for meeting sustainable development goals. And communication and education uh, is the key to success. And a vital component that we have not addressed uh, this morning is how we can build uh, new relationships with non-science stakeholders and to embrace a new era of innovation, data sharing, and scientific co-creation. What I've seen over the past several years and also participated in is citizen science workshops uh, in Southeast Asia especially in Vietnam's lower Mekong Delta. Citizen science uh, really celebrates the power of public participation in the scientific process to address real-world problems. It's the collaboration between scientists and interested local citizens to broaden the scope of research and help compile scientific data through community-based monitoring and internet-driven crowdsourcing strategies. So the growth And the important role for citizen science is that the availability of information technology is seen in the adoption of cell phones, the smartphones for, you know, gathering and sharing data and photos. And so with the rise of uh, literacy throughout Southeast Asia and improved economic status, young people are engaged in evidence-based policymaking, such as pollution monitoring initiatives. And the profile of citizen science is also growing as a key pillar for open science that encourages scientific collaborations that benefit science, society, and which opens up the process of scientific knowledge creation. Uh, In Vietnam, as you know, where I've spent considerable time reporting, there are over 44 million citizens under the age of 35 out of a population of 100 million who are using the internet, social media, and data collection to engage in a kind of transformative grassroots environmentalism. And their ecological awareness is reflected in environmental workshops that we've set up at the Mekong Environment Forum uh, based at Kanto University, where these uh, kind of net-savvy young students are coupled with their science interests are helping inform local farmers and fishers on ways to mitigate climate change and monitor water and organize community-based programs. So I see uh, with the rise of social media, it's proving to be a play an important role in promoting environmental awareness among a younger generation throughout Southeast Asia. It is now becoming almost ingrained as part of a rising participatory culture. And I'm encouraged by that. Uh, in Vietnam, uh, it's, it's simple. A citizen-driven culture means that large numbers of Vietnamese farmers, fishers, and educated youth are realizing uh, their capacity to produce and to share media with each other and often responding critically to the products of state-controlled media. So these actions are gradually bringing about some kind of structural changes in environmental policymaking and implementation. I am most encouraged by that. Uh, so, James, we do have a couple minutes left. Uh, your latest book, Dispatches from the South China Sea, Navigating to Common Ground. What was the catalyst for you to write that book? Well, the conversations that I uh, had with fishermen uh, as well as marine scientists in the region, uh, I think specifically the time I spent aboard some Vietnamese uh, fishing trawlers, uh, uh, of Da Nang, uh, off the central coast of Vietnam. Uh, there I was really prompted to know their story, to understand their story, and that this was a story that was being played out not just off the coast of Vietnam, but throughout Southeast Asia. So in my... Uh, well, this is kind of shameless promotion, but in, <laughs> my publisher would have it no other way. Um, in the introduction to my book, uh, I'm just going to read very quickly, briefly, uh, a passage. But I think this sort of uh, underscores our entire program conversation this morning. Uh, I wrote, the voices of these marine scientists and the fishermen remind us that we must protect all the parts of the systems on which we depend. From the smallest ecosystem to the hermit crabs I've seen on Kula Chomp. Rachel Carson's seminal, The Sea Around Us, a book that I've taught to Coastal Carolina University marine science students, reminds us 
that we must be faithful stewards of the sea. The scientist's poignant and prescient words spill over into our consciousness. She wrote, The little crab alone with the sea became a symbol that stood for life itself, for the delicate, destructive, yet incredibly vital force that somehow holds in place amid the harsh realities of the inorganic world. Underline the beauty of the spectacle, there is meaning and significance. Yeah, Rachel Carson is a, was an extraordinary uh, champion for protecting the environment. And it sounds to me, James, like you're on that same mission. Uh, all of the educating you're, you're doing with your environmental policy writing, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely needed right now more than, more than ever, frankly. Unfortunately, we have uh, just passed our one-hour mark on the show, James. Uh, we're going to have to let you go. Uh, thank you so much for, for spending time with us this morning on uh, National Security This Week. Thank you, John. It was my pleasure. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Ask anyone with a DWI if it was worth it. Don't drive impaired. Drive sober. Drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. Self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps.